Hi, and welcome to the Business Revolution podcast. My name is Rob Yates, and together with Mark Hopkins, we're going to be bringing you a special guest today, a guest that we are delighted to interview. Today, we are so fortunate to have Alan Stein Jr. Now, Alan is a world-renowned coach, author, and corporate keynote speaker. And for 15 years, he spent working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet. And this is what excites me so much about tonight, uh, our podcast. Because we're going to actually have some conversations where you're going to have two individuals who have really worked at the highest level of elite sport, bantering, sharing ideas, sharing concepts, and sharing one or two amusing stories that I know some of the stories I've got to share, they take me in the greatest light which is all the things that we want. But Alan is a phenomenal speaker. If you get a chance, go and look at his uh, webpage. We'll share those details later on. But go and look at some of the stuff. His clapping and the ones he does with his hands over the top, I laugh every time I see it and how he catches everybody out to start off with. He teaches audiences how to utilize those strategies that he observed and learned through elite sport in a business world. He specializes in improving individual and organizational leadership, performance, and for me, most importantly, accountability. Now, I'm sure by the end of this, you are gonna be inspired and empowered to go and make a fundamental difference in your life. So uh, without further ado, uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining us, joining us today. And I'm really excited to hear some of the stories that you've got, both from uh, your sporting background, but also from your your amazing career that you've had working with uh, phenomenal individuals and businesses. Oh, I'm equally excited. I know we're going to have a fun chat that's uh, going to be meaningful and productive, but we'll, we'll be entertaining as well because I look forward to learning from you just as much as you may learn from me. So we'll, we'll have a good time. Perfect. Um, we'll have a little competition. Who can, uh, who can generate the best stories? <laughs> I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so um, obviously you do, uh, you're well-renowned. You're uh, a coach. Uh, we'll talk a lot about your book, Raise Your Game, later on. Uh, you speak, you do coach, you do everything. There's so many things you do. But the thing that um, I'm fascinated about is this concept of performance coaching, both organizationally and individually. Um, first of all, let's just make sure that our, everyone knows what, what is a performance coach. And then secondly, why do you think so many individuals and organizations are getting so much value from the work that you and other performance coaches do? Well, when I was in the basketball space, performance coach was was rather narrow. I mean, my job was to help players improve their athleticism, uh, improve their mind-body connection, you know, uh, bulletproof their body to make them resilient against industry uh, in, uh, injury, and just to do everything within my power to improve the, the baseline foundation of what they need to be a great player. And then when I made the leap over to the corporate space, <clears throat> it's really the same thing. I mean, my goal on an individual level is to help give folks the tools and the strategies they need to become the best versions of themselves in everything that they do. Uh, and then collectively teach groups how to work with each other to do that, you know, within the confines of a team. And a good portion of what I try to do focuses on leadership and, and the concept that leadership is a choice and that it doesn't really matter what your title or your rank or your position is within your organization. You choose whether or not to lead from wherever you are and you choose whether or not to have a positive influence uh, over your surroundings and your coworkers and your colleagues. So a lot of it stems 
from leadership on the individual level and then on a on a collective organizational level uh, i love that that you're a big fan of accountability because that's usually the area where most organizations get tripped up um, but i can talk about a little success flow that i have that leads to culture uh, on an organizational level culture is the number one determining factor on whether or not a business will be successful uh, long term and sustainable yeah, it's an interesting, it's a couple of things straight away that you, you've really raised. Now, the first one, just I'd love you to elaborate a little bit more about where you say leadership is a choice. What, what do you mean by that? Well, if it, we have to look at how each person defines it. I define leadership as the ability to have a positive impact or influence over someone else, that, that you can um, help modify their behavior uh, by, through your influence, which is a combination of, of creating connection, having effective communication. You know, uh, leadership uh, is about servanthood. Um, it's about filling other people's buckets. It's about getting them to go places uh, that either they might not want to go or they don't think they can go without your help. Uh, and that's what leadership is. And I think lots of times organizations get stuck with actual, with the org chart and, you know, who's been, who's been given powers of authority, you know, who is the quote unquote boss or who is the manager, or who is the supervisor. And even though those people have been given positions of authority, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an effective leader. Uh, so first of all, those folks need to develop um, the craft of leadership. But then even if you're not given one of those powers of authority, you still have the ability to lead. You still have the ability uh, to have a positive impact on your surroundings uh, and your colleagues and your coworkers. And, you know, I, I spent so much time in basketball. And if you look at a basketball team, yeah, of course, the head coach has been given the authority um, as a head coach. And, and, and the star player usually has some, uh, you know, unspoken and unwritten authority because they're the best player. But every single coach on the coaching staff, every single player on the team, even the, the team managers, have the ability to lead from where they are if they make that conscious choice. And, and a good portion of my work uh, is encouraging and empowering people to make that choice. Yeah, it's an interesting one when you, you, you use an analogy, the sporting analogy. Um, and again, it's um, the thing that when you talk about le leadership and leaders and you mentioned their org charts and the feeling that individuals have of power, as soon as they get that label next to their name they feel powerful and their ego swells and one thing i always find interesting in both business and in sport where um there was a, a period of time where everyone said you've got a it's, it's don't be embarrassed if you've got a big ego but for me when i'm working with elite athletes and stuff it's the opposite for me if i see an athlete who doesn't have a massive ego the chance of them actually being successful i think is is pretty small the difference when you get into a team sport is that ego has to be big to be successful, but it cannot be to the detriment of what the team's trying to achieve. Just wondering uh, what, you, what your views on that. Oh, you nailed it. And it, it is, it's a delicate balance because confidence is a really attractive quality, uh, yet arrogance and narcissism is very unattractive. That will repel. And, and often that can be a, a razor's thin edge between the two. Yes, for you to be successful in any walk of life, whether it's sport or business, you have to have confidence. You have to have self-belief. You have to put in the work to know that you deserve an opportunity to be successful. 
Not that anything's going to be handed to you. That would be entitlement. But you have to believe in yourself and the work that you've put in and the, and the, the thousands of repetitions you've put in during the unseen hours to deserve success. So that confidence is incredibly important. But, but as you said so, so brilliantly, uh, if, it gets, if the ego gets too inflated, it will end up being to the detriment of the team because then you'll believe that you are above the team or you're above the standards or that you're more important than one of your teammates. And that's when we can have a, a major issue. So, you know, from an ego standpoint, I mean, it is, if you're using your ego in a way that it's going to develop your teammates and your coworkers and it's going to help them, then that's incredibly positive. So you mentioned kind of that being drunk with authority. If you're given a position, you know, you're labeled the boss or you're labeled a manager, you can take that and actually use it as a positive and say, okay, uh, I'm going to have people's attention now. They're going to feel that they need to listen to me. And I, I want to make the most of that. I don't want to take advantage of them. I don't want to get complacent. Uh, I want to make the most of the fact that I've got a captive audience of people that that want me to lead, and I'm going to be the most effective, uh, compassionate, uh, graceful leader that I can, uh, as opposed to doing what a lot of people do, uh, unfortunately, which is then rest on their laurels and say, well, I'm the boss. They have to listen to me no matter what. So it really doesn't matter if I work on my leadership because they have to listen to me. And then that obviously would be to the detriment of that person, but absolutely to the detriment of the organization. Yeah, it's interesting because I had a conversation with a client this morning and we were, we were talking around leadership styles and the debate that this leader was going through where I gave, I gave them two options. I said, one option you have is... Uh, and they, they, they were, we were discussing um, a couple of new new recruits that were starting the business. I said, the, the debate you have in your head is, is it your responsibility to adapt your style to get the most out of those people who are joining your business? Or is it their responsibility to adapt their style to ensure it aligns to what you want? I believe it's the leader's job. I mean, I, I think uh, from coming from a servant position that you as the leader need to do everything you can to make sure that your message is being heard. You know, it's not what you say, it's what they hear, which means you have to learn to speak their language. And I'm, I'm saying that in air quotes on our audio podcast. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean actual language like, you know, if someone's speaking Mandarin or not, but you have to know their personality style. You have to know their work style. You have to know how they like to feel appreciated. You, you need to know, do they like to be held accountable in private or are they okay to be held accountable in front of their peers? Uh, these are the things, the more you can get to know them. And, and this is where emotional intelligence comes in. Uh, which I believe if we're going to make a blanket statement is probably the most important skill that a leader can have is high emotional intelligence and really understanding uh, the behaviors and the beliefs and the moods and the, the way to interact with everyone. But no, I, I believe you, you stay firm in your message, you stay firm in your philosophy and your convictions. But when it comes to communicating those, you want to be as customized and as individualized as possible. And that's much easier done in a, in a small group. So, you know, with most of my experience in basketball, you've got a head coach, you've got a couple assistant coaches, you have 12 to 15 players and maybe a couple of managers, you know, you're talking 25 people tops. That's a smaller group where you can really get to know each individual and, and really know what makes them tick and learn how to communicate effectively with them. Much more difficult to do, you know, if you have a thousand 
uh, employees. And that's where kind of the trickle-down leadership is so important because if you're the CEO, I mean, it's simply not practical that you're going to get to know all 1,000 employees on an individual level. But that's where you have the different tiers where hopefully you've trained your managers or your supervisors and they only have 10 to 15 people reporting to them and they've worked on their emotional intelligence so that they can translate your message to their people in the most effective way possible, which is why an organization simply can't have one leader to be successful. It has to have, you know, preferably everyone considers himself a leader, uh, but they need to have multiple leaders uh, to be able to scale and to, to have that message resonate with everyone. Yeah, it's a really good message for, for the listeners to, to take on board, I think, firstly, that everyone is a leader. But I think also what, what you're articulating is, is the messaging that the, the, the leader, and again, I look at this from being a head coach, is the buck stops with me. Um, I have, in essence, I have the authority to make the final decision. Yes. But how that decision, and I and again, I always look at one of my favorite books is Man's Search for Meaning by, by Victor Frankl. And a lot of that is around choice, is that any human being, any athlete owns the choices that they make. That is 100% in their control. What is 100% out of their control is the consequences of those choices. They don't have control. So, for example, if an athlete decides to go drinking the night before a performance, now that's their choice. What's out of their control is whether the coach drops him and finds him and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it is, is the messaging that the leader puts in place. So as an example, I struggle a little bit with how coaches, both in the sporting world and the business world, get put on this mantle. Um, and for example, the, the hockey team I've just coached in the World Cup, when I joined, the, took over the role, everything's about the management team, the management team, the management team, lead, lead, lead. And the first change I made is we are no longer the management team, we're the support team. We sit underneath the players and we ensure that the environment is as appropriate and aligned to achieving their goals, if not the management's goals. And I think it's something that we struggle in business as well because it is a lot of business is hierarchical. I absolutely love that. And, you know, I, I'd heard a quote, and, and I don't know who to attribute it to because I don't know who the original author was, but it said something to the effect of, if you're the CEO, your people don't work for you, you work for your people. And that's really what you just said, that that simple mind shift and terminology twist to say that we're not the management team, we're the support team. Uh, even if your, your role and your function didn't change, just that alone sends a completely different message to everyone on the team and everyone in the organization. Yeah, I, ab I absolutely love that. Agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I think sometimes we, we overcomplicate things. And I'd like to just, you mentioned the word, which is my, the word that scares me the most probably in, in society at the moment, which is entitlement. Um, and again, I, I was I, looking at some of your, your YouTube videos and stuff you've done where you were talking about elite athletes, and, and we'll, we'll touch that in a second, but you were talking about the difference is they, they do what is needed behind the scenes when no one's watching and they don't expect anything for free. They, they understand that in order to be an elite athlete, they have to differentiate themselves from others. That's what elite means. If it wasn't the differentiated, everyone's the same, and then we're all ordinary. There's no such thing as extraordinary. How in, in, in society and, and where you're engaging at the moment, I've got a nine-year-old boy, and it's the one thing I'm adamant that he will understand is entitlement for me is a disease. Um, where's, where's your, what are you observing in society at the moment around entitlement? 
Well, then that, that's just another thing that, that you and I share in common. Uh, I actually have eight-year-old twin sons and a six-year-old daughter. So as the father of three, wow. um, yeah, fighting the disease of entitlement uh, is, is one of the main pillars of my parenting philosophy. And uh, entitlement in and of itself, the, the mentality that that things should be handed to you uh, closely resembles narcissism and arrogance and some of the other things we mentioned earlier that really repel people. I mean, anytime you meet someone and they have an air of entitlement, it's a turnoff. It erodes connection instead of helping forge and build connection. Uh, but then the problem too is it also erodes work ethic. You know, you feel that you don't need to put in the work to deserve or earn the starting position or to win the game or to land that sales contract, you just feel it should happen naturally. And then that's going to erode uh, your habits, uh, your, your mindset, your work ethic. So it, it really is a slippery slope. And what I find fascinating is, you know, lots of people are saying that kids today are more entitled than ever. And, and it's not their fault that we're the ones as the adults that should be taking the blame. I mean, if in fact, kids today are more entitled than they were 10, 15 years ago, that falls on us as the adults because we're the ones allowing it. You know, one of the, the oldest coaching mantras that, that I learned at a very early age was you either correct it or you accept it. Those are the only two things you can do in coaching. You either correct it or you accept it. If you see a player and their, their footwork is sloppy, you either coach them and teach them and correct that footwork or you just allow it to be sloppy. And it's the same thing with entitlement. You know, I don't accept entitlement from my children. And, and therefore, you know, over time and through proper conditioning and repetition, they very rarely have an entitled attitude. So, yeah, I, I don't buy into this business that, that kids are more entitled. If anything, the adults should take the blame because they've been accepting that and they've been allowing that. And, and we simply can't do that because entitlement, I mean, it, 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 it will end up being a cancer, not only to the individual, but to any organization. It's, it's very similar to selfishness. Uh, I believe selfishness is the number one, uh, you know, undermining factor in any team component. Once you have selfishness, you're going to start to have some major problems. So it needs to be nipped in the bud immediately. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting. One. I'm just wondering where, where do you think, and I 100% agree with you, it's not, it's not the children's fault, it's, it's our fault. Where do you think that has that? Do you think it's because, and I know it's a very easy excuse, um, but it's something that I'm consciously working on at the moment around being more present. And um, I, will, will, I want to touch later on around how do we navigate through all this noise that we're facing, where I know when I was growing up, my dad got home from work and he, that was it, him done basically. He had a bit of paperwork to do, but he was, he was present where now we are, we wake up and the first thing we do is check phones and emails and the last thing we do before we go to bed is check phones and emails. Do you think that's, that's giving rise to, I'm not calling it poor parenting, I'm calling it uh, non-attentive parenting that's allowing that entitlement to creep in? Absolutely. I mean, the, the digital distractions we all face today are, are rampant and they're happening every second of every day. So uh, if you don't have uh, the discipline to be able to literally turn those things off to be present with your children or be present, you know, with your spouse or with your colleague or coworker or with friends, um, then yeah, then that, that can start to create a problem too. But, but let's keep in mind too, this happens with every generation. I mean, I would imagine that my parents' generation think that our generation was, was entitled too. And then we tend to think that about the ones coming up behind us. It's, it's kind of that rite of passage. I think 
every generation thinks the following one is softer and weaker and more entitled, and it's simply not the case. Now, the world is changing, and yeah, I mean, with with the advent of the internet and, and certainly with the explosion of social media, it just changes the dynamic um, on how we learn, on how we connect, on how we grow, where we put our focus, where we put our attention. Uh, so we need to be able to shift and change with that because that's not going anywhere. You know, it's a, another one of my favorite quotes is, uh, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. You know, these digital distractions are not going anywhere. If anything, they're only going to be strengthened and heightened over the next few years. So as parents, as leaders, as business owners, as athletes, as coaches, we have to learn how to deal with that. And we have to learn uh, how to be present despite these uh, distractions. And that just means it's probably more of a challenge than our parents had to. As you mentioned, you know, your father had a lot less distractions when he would come home from work. I mean, he had a, a job and when the job was done, you know, he was off until the day started the next day. And, you know, with this rise of of everyone being connected digitally uh, with the rise of entrepreneurship where more and more people are starting their own businesses and running their own businesses, which if anyone listening does that, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of a 24 seven thing. I mean, you never really turn it off because it's your baby. It's your business. It's like parenting. I mean, you, you don't turn parenting off. You're the parent all of the time. And, and I think those things simply make it more challenging. Um, but that's no excuse for us uh, to not, work on our craft, whether it's as a parent or in business or sport. So, so you, mentioned, you mentioned there a couple of things. I'm just interested um, in the organizations that you, you coach and support and individuals that you work closely with, what are, what are some of the, the common challenges, frustrations that you're seeing that you are, that you're supporting in at the moment? What, what, what do you, what are the trends that you're seeing? Almost every frustration or disappointment or times people get stuck in a rut almost always comes back to communication or, or lack thereof or ineffective communication. Uh, that's usually kind of where uh, the yarn starts to unravel. Uh, and then there's other things that contribute to that. Uh, but, but it has to do with when you're in a team environment, you have to create the implicit trust and you have to know that everybody cares enough about each other to be able to speak the truth and, and that can speak directly and speak clearly. And that's really where holding others accountable comes in that, that I know we'll dive into. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly important to do that. And, and it's also important for folks to know that you don't have to like everyone in your organization. Like you don't have to be BFFs and go grab beers with every person on your team, but you do have to care about them. There's a difference between liking and caring. Uh, caring is a choice. Caring is an act of will. Uh, even if you and I, you know, we have different likes, we have different interests, you know, there, there's not much that you and I have in common. I can still choose to care about you as a human being. And I can still choose to care about the organization that we both work for. And that caring and building of trust will allow us to have more effective communication. Whereas if I hold you accountable uh, because you didn't live up to the standards of our group, that That'll, you'll be less likely to take that personal, less likely to be defensive and to deflect because you'll know that it's coming from a sincere place, that I'm telling you this because I care about you and I care about our company. And, and that's where I think most groups initially get caught up is lack of communication or ineffective communication, and they haven't built the requisite trust and, and caring that's necessary to hold people to the level of accountability required for success. So I just want to stress this point because it's, for me, it's probably one of the most critical things that any 
leader or member of a team can ever hear. Uh, so what Alan said, and I just want to stress this because I am 100% supportive of this, is you do not have to like everybody in your team. All you have to do is trust and have respect for them that you're all trying to achieve the same goal. And that, that is a critical thing. We, we talk about this in sport a lot where don't worry about what the person on the ball is going to do. Your job is to make them awesome by giving them as many options as they possibly can and trust that person to make the right decision for the team. And, and it doesn't Absolutely. mean you have to finish a performance and then go to each other's houses and have beers and be best mates. It's a load of rubbish. It doesn't work. It, it's fake. All you want to do is you want to make sure that that person on your team, when you're sitting down for dinner at some point and you've got something stuck in your teeth, that your teammate will look at you and go, Mark, you've got something stuck on your teeth. Don't walk around the restaurant with that. Those that, if I look at the people I want to surround myself with, I want to surround myself with people who tell me I've got food stuck in my teeth. Absolutely. And that's what accountability is. See, people tend to get that word twisted because accountability and discipline, I, I think, are cousins of each other. And it's so important for folks to realize that when you hold someone accountable, that's not something you do to them. That's something you do for them. Hmm. Uh, I'm actually giving you a gift when I tell you that you have spinach in your teeth because I'm going to help you, uh, you know, prevent future embarrassment when, you know, when you go to talk to somebody later. So that's actually a gift. The fact that I care enough about you to tell you that is the gift that I'm giving you. And it's the same thing from an accountability standpoint. If you and I are teammates in sport or in business, and you're not giving the best effort that you're capable of, and I call you out as your teammate, and I do so with respect, I do so with compassion and empathy and grace, but I say, look, Mark, you're, you're not working as hard as you're capable of. You know, you're better than this. I know that you can do better than you're currently doing. Uh, human nature is you're going to get a little bit defensive and you may make an excuse or two because we're humans and we are fallible. But the quicker you can go through that process, the better. Because then ultimately, you should thank me. You should say, man, Alan is a great teammate because he wants to push me to the level that I'm capable of. He's not okay with me giving 80% when he knows I'm capable of giving 100. Man, I really appreciate him doing that. And that's the attitude that elite level organizations have, that they can get past the defensiveness, the deflecting, and the pettiness, and don't take these things personal. You know, if I tell you, Mark, you need to work harder, that has nothing to do with whether or not I like you. That isn't a personal attack on you. I'm basically uh, confronting your behavior, and your behavior is that you're not working as hard as you can. And when you don't work as hard as you can, you lessen all of our chances to be successful. Our team just, we lowered our ability to be successful because you chose not to give your best effort. And as your teammate, I simply can't accept that. And then what's most important is then, of course, I need to be open for the inverse of that. Then at tomorrow's practice or at tomorrow's sales meeting, when you hold me accountable because I'm not doing my best, then I need to be open to receive that coaching just as much as I want you to be open. And, and when everyone can do that and everyone holds each other accountable, so it's not accountability can't just be vertical. It can't just be I'm the coach, you're the player, I hold you accountable, that's it. Or I'm the boss, you report to me, I hold you accountable. Accountability has to be horizontal. Teammates need to hold each other accountable. Teammates need to hold their coaches or, or their bosses or their managers accountable. It, it has to go, uh, this connection needs to be with everyone in the group uh, in order for the team to truly reach its potential and be elite. 
and that's yeah exactly what you're saying it's it's and how you finish that off it's about for truly for the team to be elite and i love how you phrased it and i think individual listeners as you as you hear this hear the words that alan specifically said he didn't say you're not working as hard as i am he specifically said you're not working as hard as you are capable of i think and again if i look at average to poor teams to good to great teams the good to great teams are understanding each other and helping each other achieve the highest possible outcome that that individual can do poor to average teams are comparing other people to themselves and going well i've got into the office at eight o'clock he got in at nine o'clock therefore he's not working as hard as me that's a fundamental difference that um i'm sure alan you've experienced this on numerous occasions like i have where it's so easy you can spot within the first 30 seconds of a training session if you go and work with a new group. You can spot straight away where some of those issues in terms of team dynamic. Absolutely. I, I love that you brought up the fact about the comparison game because that's that's a deadly trap in any organization because then it it starts this internal scorekeeping of, hey, look what I'm doing, look what you're not doing, and now there's an imbalance, uh, and that never is going to result in a positive. Uh, and, and with the model that you and I agreed to from an accountability standpoint, you know, that means that, you know, you have the Los Angeles Lakers, and, and LeBron is the best player on the Lakers. I mean, he's the best player in the world, but that means that the 15 man the guy at the furthest end of the bench has every right to hold LeBron accountable for his effort has every right to say you know LeBron I know you're the king but you're dogging it today in practice man you're not giving your best effort and if LeBron is the champion that he wants to be then he would accept that coaching from his teammate uh, the problem would be when he rolls his eyes and goes who are you to tell me I'm the best player on the team. You don't even play. You're the 15th man. You're not going to tell me to work harder. And that's when we have, again, that cancer that can, can erode any team. And what I found, and, and this has been really helpful uh, for me as a coach, both in business and in sport, but I encourage teams to do, is there's a series of questions that you should be able to ask every person in your organization. Uh, and you can change the terminology slightly, you know, if it, if it fits better with a different word. But basically, everyone on the team in sport or in business should be able to look to their right and to their left and say, do you give me permission to coach you? Hmm. It doesn't mean they have to be the coach or the player. Do you give me permission to coach you and to do everything in my power to make you the best that you can be? And it's a binary question. It's a yes or a no. Uh, if the answer is no, then you need to take a hard look at whether or not that person should be in the organization because they might not be a good fit. Uh, assuming the answer is yes, then the next question would be, do you give me permission to hold you accountable to the standards that we've all agreed upon? And, and I know I haven't covered standards yet. I can unpack that in a moment. But basically, this would be you and I are teammates, and I look you in the eye and I say, Mark, do you give me permission to hold you accountable? That when I see that you're not giving your best, is it okay for me to tell you that? And once you've given me that permission, and then, of course, you're going to ask me the same thing, and I'm going to grant you permission. Once we've made an agreement, that in and of itself usually alleviates a lot of the potential problems. Because then two weeks from now, when you're dogging it in practice, uh, or you're dogging it in a sales meeting, and I call you out for not giving your best effort, you may immediately get defensive. But then we're both going to kind of chuckle because it's like, hey, Mark, you, you told me that I could do yeah. this. 
you gave me permission to hold you accountable. So there's really not a whole lot you can say. And, and I found that simple exercise of people looking each other in the eye and agreeing that they can coach each other and hold each other accountable is a tremendous first step uh, to, to, to kind of alleviating all of the pressure that these situations can sometimes cause. Yeah, and, and you alluded to the standards, and it's the two things that whenever I, I start with a team, be it business or sporting team, the, the two things I always start with is is this creating that sense of purpose and building trust within the within the team. So I think standards and sense of purpose are are pretty closely aligned. So um, how do you go about creating those those standards for for everyone? Because again. We, we throw the word accountability out. It's all well and good to hold people accountable, but you've got to be able to hold them accountable to something. Um, so how, how do you go about creating those standards? So what I call, I call it a success flow. Works in basketball, works in business. And the, the base level, and I think you use the word purpose, which is a wonderful word. Uh, I, I use the word identity, and it's, it's very similar. And the identity of the team or the organization is the collective and curated answers to questions like, who are we? What do we stand for? What do we believe? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, if we're a business, what problem do we solve? And who do we solve it for? Who's our, who's our target audience or who's our ideal customer? You know, why is this important? Why are so many people going to make personal sacrifices to be a part of this group? Like why? And, and once you can start to get an idea of who you are and what you are and what you're trying to do, that's your identity. That is your North Star. That is, that is your pulse and that is your heartbeat as an organization. And once you have that, then you want to get as many people to share their voice as possible to create standards, which is what we just were talking about. Uh, the old school way of leadership is top-down management, which is I'm the boss, I'm gonna write down the rules, I'm gonna tell you all what the rules are and you have to follow them. And if you don't, you're out of here. That doesn't work very well. That's, that's not how people perform at their best. So instead of rules, we wanna create standards. And standards are the code that we will live by in order to uphold the identity that we just established. And it's so important to get everyone's voice heard. And yes, when you have a thousand people on your, your organization or your business, you're not necessarily going to get a thousand people in a room to come up with your standards. But what I highly recommend you do is you make sure that every department is represented. So you've got a marketing department, a sales department, a research and development department, an executive leadership team. Uh, you have, you know, uh, admin assistants. You have all of these different people. Just make sure that each spoke on the wheel is going to have some say because they're going to have a completely different perspective on what the standards should be. And, and I'll, I'll use being prompt and being on time just because it's an easy example. So let's just say the core of our team is sitting in a room and we've flushed out what our identity is. And now we say, okay, what are some standards that we need to live up to uh, to live out this identity? And Mark, you raise your hand and you say, well, I think it's important that we're on, on time for all team functions. You know, all practices, all meetings, all film sessions, all games, we need to be on time. Uh, one, because that shows, each, that shows your teammates and your coaches that you respect them, that time is the most valuable resource we have, and we're always going to be on time. And we have a lot that we're trying to accomplish, and we need to be incredibly efficient. So being on time is imperative. And then we just kind of proverbially look around the room. Does everyone agree that being on time is a standard that we need to live up to this identity? And everybody says, yeah, yeah, okay. So one of our standards is we will always be on time. 
All right, great. Well, then the next part of the success flow, we go from identity to standards. And now the next part is accountability, which is what we've already talked about. And we've created that two-way um, acceptance of permission, where now when someone does not live up to the standards, we will hold them accountable. So three weeks later, we've got a big company meeting, and Mark, you roll in three minutes late. Well, you've clearly violated one of our standards that we need to uphold in order to be successful and uphold our identity. You've already given me permission to hold you accountable, so you already know what's coming. You're three minutes late, and you know uh, that that's going to be an issue. And now, if I'm a, an effective leader, and I have high emotional intelligence, and I've built trust with you, and I've learned your personality style, I'll know the best way to approach that with you, which could be, you know, kind of calling you out in front of the rest of the team, or it could be I wait until the meeting's over and I put my arm around you and, and ask why you were late, whatever it may be, but it needs to be addressed. And elite organizations know that how you do anything is how you do everything. Because someone could easily say, dude, it's not a big deal. Mark was three minutes late. Who cares? Well, he's violating a standard, and if we're going to accept Mark being three minutes late, that's just going to start to erode everything else that we're doing. Then Jane thinks it's okay to be five minutes late, and Tom thinks it's okay to submit the proposal two days late. It's just going to lead to other problems. So we have to nip those things in the bud, and that's where accountability comes in. But again, I'm holding you accountable because I care about you, Mark, and I care about our organization, and that you being three minutes late, even if you have a good reason is unacceptable and I can't accept it as, as part of this team. And the level at which you hold each other accountable to the standards that you created to uphold your identity, that is what your culture is. Culture is a huge buzzword in sport and in business. That is what your culture is. Uh, it's how well you hold each other accountable to the standards you've created for the identity that you've established. And your culture is the number one determining factor for long-term sustainable results, whether on the basketball court or in business. And that flow there, if mastered and executed consistently, is, is the recipe to success. And the last thing I'll say, and I know that was a mouthful, what I just explained is very, very basic. My eight-year-old twin sons understand what I just said, but doing those things is definitely not easy. There's nothing easy about any of the stuff that I just shared, and it's important that folks realize that basic and easy are not synonyms. What it takes to be successful is incredibly basic. What it takes to be successful is very difficult and very challenging to put into practice. Yeah, it's, it's pretty... It's I'm just digesting everything you said, and it's it's interesting because it's like you said, it's very easy to come up with these standards. But as a leader, you've always got you're constantly making decisions. You're constantly going, okay, Mark's three minutes late. What am I going to do now? Because whatever I do now is going to have knock-on repercussions, as you said, to a proposal or this and this and this. And it's interesting because a lot of times when I do sort of exec coaching. One of the first questions I ask the leader is, what is your intent? Mm. And they look at me and they're sort of, they don't actually understand the question. I'm going, well, you're in a leadership position. What is your intent? Um, and it, it's, it almost goes back to what you said at the start of that quote, coach it or accept it. And, and if a leader struggles to articulate what is their intent, then again, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this numerous times when you've worked in, in teams of businesses, then I straight away, I'm, the red flag's going up for me. If a, if a leader can't articulate what their intent is, then I can imagine what the rest of the organization is feeling because it might come almost like schizophrenic because 
one day the leader's intent is to do hold Mark accountable for being late. The next day, something else has happened. He's distracted or she just she uh, supersedes it. And, and it's just a vicious cycle. So I think, again, if you're thinking, if you're in a position where you are working with others, try and have clarity in terms of what is your intent in these in generally, because you can use that as your compass in all situations to help you with that decision-making process. I love that because the intent shouldn't change. And that's where we want to make sure that we can be as unbiased as possible because here's where uh, we could have a major issue is you come in three minutes late, but I don't do anything because you and I are friends. We're boys. So it's okay that you were three minutes late. And then tomorrow Jane's three minutes late, but I don't really care for her. So I hold her accountable. You know, when, when we're confronting others, we're confronting behavior. We're not confronting people it has nothing to do with personalities. It has to do with, uh, as you said, the intent. And if the intent is noble and the intent is to hold everyone accountable to their best effort so that this company can be successful, <clears throat> then we take the personal side out of it, which is what we need to try to do is depersonalize the accountability portion. Now, we want to have <clears throat> personal relationships and care about one another and learn each other and, and have that type of camaraderie and chemistry. But from an accountability standpoint, yeah, it needs to be neutral and unbiased. I love that phrase, depersonalize the accountability part. Uh, it's very true because, again, a lot of organizations talk about we, we want to be personable. We want to be this personal, warm, caring organization. It's like, well, yeah, it's all well and good and stuff like that. But there's got to be a big caveat to that because you've got to be able to have those tough conversations that you're approaching for the benefit of the greater good, not as a, a vendetta or not because your ego is being bashed or you feel that someone's trying to take over your empire. It's, and again, it's a very altruistic way of looking at the world and especially where I think society is at the moment. It's, it's what we're talking about, as you said, and, and I know uh, work you, on your website, I love that bit where it's from Kobe Bryant, where just because it's basic, it doesn't mean it's easy. But the stuff that we're doing is blooming difficult for leaders to, to really get their head around, especially on top of everything else that they're trying to deal with. Yes. And which is why, you know, uh, qualities like humility and grace and compassion, uh, those are so important. You know, it's important for the leader to acknowledge you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. It's important for teammates to know that's going to happen. And, and when you handle these things with grace and compassion, um, you still hold someone accountable for them, but you do so in a way that lets them know that you do care about them and that, hey, tomorrow's a new day. So, you know, when a teammate, uh, a teammate doesn't give their best effort, you hold them accountable. You let them know that not giving their best effort is completely unacceptable, but you also let them know, hey, I'm here to support you. And hey, I've had days where I haven't given my best effort, so there's some empathy there. And that's where I think you can build, you know, some of these warmer feelings. Because I don't believe that a team needs to be completely sterile and unbiased. There needs to be a human component. There needs to be a, a draw and a connection and a caring about one another. Uh, there's just a time and a place for all of that. And, and to me, the most important is switching the mind shift from thinking accountability is about coming down on people and being hard on them and busting their chops when it's the exact opposite. I believe holding someone accountable is, is how you show them that you care and is how you show them that you love them. And perfect example, I mean, you said you have your son and, and my children. You know, as a parent, I mean, we love our kids more than anything in the world. I would take a bullet for my kids in a heartbeat, but I hold them accountable. And when they mess up, 
I make sure they know that they messed up and we learn the lesson from it. And, you know, of course, over time, do I want to develop a loving friendship with my kids and a close connection? Of course, I want that. But the most important part to me, my parenting philosophy as their father, is to hold them accountable uh, to what they need to do to grow up, to be happy, well-adjusted, contributing citizens to this world. And when they step outside of those bounds, it is my job as their father to, to coach them and to parent them and to let them know. And, and that's what's most important. Yeah, and again, it's, it's what, what you articulated is an absolute clarity of the definition of your role as a parent. Uh, as you articulate that you have complete clarity of what your primary role is as a parent. And, that, and again, I, I look at coaches, I look at leaders, and you can see I had, I had one instance recently in the World Cup where I got asked the question as the head coach, and I didn't know the answer. I had no blooming idea. Uh, and it was a very, very good question, and I didn't know. And I looked, and you, you go to those moments, and you go, what is my intent? What is my response going to be? And I, I responded with, I have absolutely no idea. What do you guys think? And you could see sort of the, you could hear that pin drop in the room a little bit. It's like, what? The head coach doesn't know the answer to the question. It's like, yep, I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure the 22 other brains in this room together, we can figure it out pretty well. I think it is so critical that each of us in, and we play multiple roles every day. We play the role of a parent, the role of a taxi driver, the role of a spouse, a, a family member, a work colleague, a boss, a subordinate. We play oh, 15, 20, 30 roles a day. And it's, I think it's just, it's ensuring that we have clarity about what role are we playing at what point and how are we showing up into that role? And I think too often we, we forget to think about how do we show up in that role. Absolutely. So well said. And that's, Role clarity is vital, not even just for the leaders, but for everyone on the team. And that's when I said, you know, that communication or lack thereof or inefficient communication is usually part of the problem. A lot of that has to do with role clarity, especially for larger groups. You know, everyone doesn't know their exact role. They're making assumptions or they're doing what they want their role to be instead of what they actually, the team needs their role to be. Uh, yeah. You should be able to go down every person on the team and look them in the eye and tell them exactly what their role is on the team, what exactly what is needed from them for the team to be successful. And ultimately, a team is like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. I mean, you have all of these different pieces, all these different shapes and sizes, and some pieces are bigger than others, but every piece is important because if any one piece is missing, then you can't finish the picture. You can't, the, the collage would be incomplete. So everybody's role matters, even though some people's role will be bigger than others. And the hard part is when people don't even know what their role is. So getting that role clarity is imperative. And then next, and this is also key, is you have to get people to embrace their role. Whatever their role is, they have to embrace it and they have to want to star in that role. Now, on a basketball team, if, if you're one of the starting five and you get to take most of the shots, you're a good shooter and you're the number one offensive player, that's a pretty easy role to accept because that's the one that everybody wants. But how about the 14th man that hardly ever plays in the games? His role is to practice hard every day to push the starters to be the best they can be. That is a harder role to get people to accept. And that's a harder role to get people to have pride in. That's a harder role to get people to want to star in because everyone wants to play in the games when the cheerleaders are dancing and everybody wants to put up shots. So uh, a part of a leader, uh, what their job is, is to get some of the quote unquote lesser roles 
to buy in. And I don't say lesser from a judgmental standpoint. I just mean a, a smaller role. But getting those people to buy in and realize how important they are uh, is, is, again, something that will separate uh, okay organizations from good organizations and good organizations from great organizations. So if you are in a position where you are part of a team or leading a team, I would pause the podcast now and rewind the last 45 seconds because what Alan's just articulated for me is the precise definition of what a great leader should be doing on a, on a regular basis. It is helping people understand what the picture is going to look like, cutting those pictures up into specific roles and ensuring that everybody in the organization knows how critical that role is in order to make that picture. Not only is it critical that they know their role, it's important like a puzzle that they know which piece they are going to go and connect into to ensure that those things are completely aligned. And the final thing that, that Alan said, which is so profound, is, is every single piece in that puzzle is critical. It doesn't make a difference if you're the big earners or the small earners. If you, if you don't do your role, that puzzle will never be complete and therefore your business or your team will never truly achieve what it's capable of. So rewind Alan's last bit and write it down word for word. And if you can apply those principles into your business and your team, I would say you're going to be 60, 70% ahead of most organizations or most teams. So Alan, that is, I've been scribbling frantically. My hand's actually getting cramped, I think, at the moment. So luckily I can rewind it as well. Well, you're, you're such a tremendous active listener and you, you encapsulated that perfectly and I think you summarized it even better than I said it the first time. So no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, the mindset really needs to be when you're talking about a team is, you know, any individual should be able to look at another individual and say, look, you can't do this without the rest of us, yeah. but we can't do this without you doing your part. There's this, this inverse relationship. Uh, the individual needs the team. And the team needs the individual. And uh, not only do you want to make sure you have the right people on the team, but then you got to get them in the right seats on the bus. And them being in the right seats on the bus is them knowing their role, embracing their role, and, and having pride in starring in their role, whatever it may be. And, and, and last thing I'll say on that is it's okay for you to desire a bigger role, a more important role. It's okay for you to want to have more responsibility or to earn more playing time. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But in the current time, you have to star in your role. And then during the unseen hours, put in extra work to deserve an opportunity for an expanded role. So if, if a coach tells you, hey, your role is to be a great defender, but I don't want you shooting three-pointers, and you want to shoot three-pointers, well, in the meantime, you work on being the best defender you can be because that's what the team needs you to do, and then you can come in before and after practice and work on your three-point shot to the point that you've earned a right to take it during the game until so the coach trusts you that you can take that shot. Uh, so there's nothing wrong. In fact, I would encourage people to want to expand their role. They just can't sandbag or mail in their current role while they're doing that. Basically, uh, what you've just articulated there is that there's nothing wrong with people raising their game. And <laughs> Yes, that's a perfect segue. Do you see what I've done there? You have. You are. You are incredibly clever. Only took you 56 minutes. Great job. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, totally, totally kidding. I love you, man. I, I'm in that too. My, my debate in my head at the moment is that this conversation can go on for hours, and I think we're only scratching the surface. But I'm. I know it. Well, if we I, have to do a part two, man, I'm I'm 100% into to reconnect at any time. This is this has really been fun, and and I'm with you. I think we've only started uh, to scratch the surface. But let's 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 talk about this because I I cannot wait to uh, to get my hands on this book. 
So do you want to just, just give, um, give the listeners a, an overview in terms of Raise Your Game? Where did it come from? What are you um, hoping to achieve with the book? Um, and what could readers of the book um, expect when they, when they open the front cover? The premise of the book is to share the the high performance secrets from the best of the best. And it's uh, since most of my work has been in the world of sports, specifically in the world of basketball, uh, it's a lot of what I've learned from the best players and coaches in the world on what made them elite. And I translate that into language that people can apply that to any walk of life. Uh, You can apply it as an entrepreneur. You can apply it as an executive. You can apply it as a parent. Uh, But then I also made sure to do an equal amount of research uh, for the most successful business organizations and take case studies and lessons from them and, and reverse engineer that. So if you are a sport coach or if you're a player or an athlete, there's absolutely just as many things that you can learn. So, so really, uh, raise your game is for anyone looking to improve their performance in any specific area of their life. And it, it really dives deep into the transfer between sport and business. And, you know, my reason for writing it was, well, there was a few reasons. Uh, one, I'm a voracious reader, and, and I love reading. And there have been so many books that have had a profound impact on my life that when I was done reading that book, I saw the world differently, that my perspective actually was shifted based on the words someone wrote. And, and I just know what an amazing feeling that is. And I thought, man, if I have an opportunity to write something that could have a, a fraction of that impact on another human life, that would be a really cool and fulfilling feeling. And I'm very uh, thankful for the opportunities that I've had. You know, I've had a chance to see the unseen hours with some of the best players in the world. And I, I realize that most people haven't had that opportunity. And, and I believe as a leader, it's my job and my duty and my obligation to share those things, to give as many people a peek behind the curtain as I can. Uh, so that was, that was definitely one of the reasons uh, for writing the book, uh, was the altruism of, I, I hope that it helps people because so many other people have helped me. Uh, and then another reason, you know, as a professional speaker, uh, it helps add credibility and it's an additional leave behind that's rather sticky, that if, if I go give a keynote talk to a group, and, or, or anyone listening to this podcast, this podcast is a perfect example. Uh, if you enjoyed our discussion and some of the things we started to dive into, well, the book is simply a more expansive version of our conversation. I mean, everything we've talked about in some way, shape, or form is in the book. There's just more of it. So if you got a nice taste during this podcast, uh, I think you'll in, enjoy the book because uh, it'll dive deeper and be more expansive. So those are really the reasons for writing it. And it, it's been a really fun process. And so far, the feedback's been outstanding. Uh, which I'm I'm incredibly grateful for. On that feedback, then, if you could receive the ideal testimonial from Raise Your Game, what would that testimonial say about about the book that you've written? Probably something in alignment with what I just said about how I felt about books. If someone said, Alan, I, I read this book and there were a couple nuggets in there that really resonated with me, and now I think differently, or I'm going to behave differently, or I'm going to treat my coworkers differently, or I'm going to parent differently, I'm going to do something different in my life and make a positive change based on the words that you wrote would be, an, I mean, incredibly flattering and, and would be very fulfilling. And then, of course, someone saying, you know, Alan, I really enjoyed your book. I'm going to share it with my team or I'm going to share it to, with my coach or I'm going to share it with my son. That's the ultimate testimonial. Uh, when something impacts you enough that you want to give it to the people that you care about, 
That's what's most important. I mean, lots of people are going to send me a message or look me in the eye and say, hey, the book was great. But unless they're sharing it with others, then they really don't believe that to their core. No, I, I hear you. I've got three books that um, I always give to people as gifts. And um, I think that's, a, as you articulated there, as a, an author, I think that's a very profound one to have when people actually, I listen to a podcast with Tony Robbins and, and actually one of the books I give out is, is The Untethered Soul. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, that and, and Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, just, just books that just fundamentally have changed my, my life. So I cannot wait to... Um, read raise your game very very excited i've got one more theme which i know has is in the book um before we wrap up and it's something that um i'm interested about is the difference between routines building routines and chasing goals uh, and i just the reason i say that is i look at it from from my experience of coaching um and we i know you, you talk quite a lot around mindsets routines rituals and habits um can you just, let's, I just want to touch briefly on, on, on routines and goals and what, what's your view from an elite, uh, both business and sporting background on, on routines, habits, mindsets, and rituals? It's really the difference between focusing on the process and focusing on the outcome. Uh, we tend to live in a very outcome-based society. Uh, outcomes are what's talked about. Outcomes are what's rewarded. Uh, but the only way to increase your chances of getting any desired outcome is by living in the process or creating a series uh, of routines and rituals and habits and disciplines. Uh, that's where the gold is. And, and I'll, I'll say with full humility, that's the biggest difference between the 43-year-old Alan, which is what I am today, and the 33 or even 23-year-old Alan uh, was I used to be so much more worried about outcomes. And now I, I really don't worry about them at all. I focus on the process and, and whatever happens will end up happening. Uh, now, I'm still incredibly competitive. I still want to win, um, but I've learned that I increase my chance of winning or getting that specific outcome by living in the process and creating daily habits and daily routines and rituals that will inch me forward to whatever it is that I'm trying to get. And, you know, uh, the example I use just as a visual is, you know, if you picture a brick wall, you know, there, there's no bricks missing. It's this clean a vast wall. Well, that means someone took the, the time and had the care to lay each and every brick with precision. The only way you can get to a sound, sturdy brick wall is by laying one brick at a time as perfectly as you can. And if your goal is to have a brick wall, you don't need to worry about the brick wall. You don't need to worry about how high it's going to be, how long it's going to be, if you're going to paint it. All you have to worry about is laying the next brick as perfectly as you can. And if you do that over and over and over, there's a very good chance the wall will just take care of itself. And it's, it's the same thing, you know, uh, it, how you approach every repetition is ultimately going to define uh, and determine whether or not you reach that outcome. And the hard part, the hardest part for, for me to accept is the fact that no outcome is guaranteed. I mean, the only outcome that I know that's guaranteed is death. That's the only one that I know of. Everything else is not guaranteed, but you can greatly increase your chance of making it happen. And, you know, if you talk about shooting a basketball, you know, well, you increase your chance of the ball going in if you have a good foundational base and you're on balance and you have your elbow underneath the ball and you don't let your guide hand affect the – like there's steps that you can go through when shooting a basketball that will increase the chance that you make the shot. And the best shooters in the world 
have mastered that process and mastered those those routines and they do them consistently. Uh, same thing with my book. I don't control how many books I'm going to sell. I controlled the, the content of the book and I wrote the best book that I was capable of at the time. And I'm working hard to use social media as a platform to share it with people that I believe would it would add value to, but that's all I can do. Whether my book sells 10 copies, 1,000 copies, or 10 million copies is absolutely out of my control, so I don't spend any time worrying about it. I focus on the parts that I have control over. I think it was Gary Player who said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And, um, exactly. It's, a, it's an interesting one to end on. And, and again, I, um, I wish time stopped so we could carry on the conversation, but um, we have flown through uh, and I've I literally I think I've still got a third of all the questions that I wanted to ask you still an I mean I, I'm not exaggerating I'm not imposing and inviting myself back on your show but please know I'd, I'd be happy to do it um, you just tell me when would work for you if if you want this to digest with your listeners for a little bit and get some feedback from them maybe even some additional questions they'd like to hear you and I volley back and forth but uh, as you can hear in my voice and I know I can hear it in yours this is the stuff I'm passionate about. Like, I love talking about this. I mean, I, I have a, a fairly insane schedule, but you don't have to twist my arm to hop on the phone and talk about this for an hour. This has been really fun and, and hopefully meaningful to your audience. So, yeah, you just let me know, Mark. I, I would love to come back on it at, at your convenience, man. We'll, we can just keep this thing rolling. Cool. So I've got one more question then to finish off with. Um, sure, brother. What's the one question that you wish I would have asked you? Ah, I love that. Um, I mean, you've done such a thorough job. And, and, and one of the reasons, because I've had my own podcast for a, for a long time, uh, the ultimate compliment I can give you is you are a tremendous active listener and that nothing about this conversation felt forced or felt like you were just, you know, running me through the rigors of these, these questions that you had, you know, developed over the last couple of weeks. Every time we were discussing something, you came up with an insightful question based on what we were talking about, which is the reason that we didn't get to get through all of the questions that you had written down, because we just let the conversation go where it needed to go. And, and for that, I, I truly commend you. So uh, I can't think of anything that you didn't ask. I know that you've got some other questions locked and loaded that for a future episode, that will be oh. awesome. Um, but yeah, nothing jumps out, man. You, you did a masterful job. This has been one of my favorite interviews I've done, and I've done a lot. Yeah, that's awesome, too. But the most important thing uh, for the listeners is to, if you're like me, then all you want is you want more of Alan. So um, Alan, how, how do the listeners buy your book? How do they touch base with you? I know there's going to be listeners who are going, I need to work with this guy. So how, how, do, how do we find you? If they're interested in the book, uh, they can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Um, and if you're interested in any of the other stuff I have going on, you can go to allensteinjr.com. And I'm at allensteinjr uh, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on all of the major social channels. Um, and I love connecting with people. So if someone listening, uh, please, by all means, reach out, you know, drop me a line. Either there's an, there's an online inquiry form on my site or you can, uh, you know, send me a social message. Uh, that would be awesome because, I, as I said, I love this type of dialogue, uh, and, and I would welcome you all to submit to Mark some other themes and topics and questions that you'd love for us to talk about, and we'll do those in, in round two and maybe even have a round three. Done. 
So that's allensteinjr.com. Um, get in touch. Tap into this brain. Um, tap into this experience. There's not many people in the world who have the absolute privilege to work with the world's best. And we are talking the world's best at what they do. Um, not only that, there's not many people in the world who are willing to share that knowledge with, with everybody through a book. So go and buy Raise Your Game. Go and connect with Alan um, and get more information that's going to have a fundamental difference, not only in your business and team, but in you as a person. So, Alan, I am gutted and thrilled in equal measures. Gutted that we have to finish. Thrilled that we got through some fascinating conversations and I'm already buzzing for the part two. So thank you very much and bring on part two. Likewise. Thank you.